Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I am your host, Thomas Shexall. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, one of my lifelong best friends, Alex Allen, is coming on the pod to discuss his lifelong favorite team, the Tennessee Volunteers. They are up to number 11 in the AP poll and host the Florida Gators uh, when College Game Day will be in town in Knoxville this upcoming Saturday. So Alex was kind enough to give us a few minutes of his time to kind of go over uh, the outlook, big picture for Tennessee, the state of the program going forward, and then we'll dive into a more specific breakdown of the Tennessee-Florida game today. Um, before then, we're going to look back at the week three action. After we talk about Tennessee-Florida with Alex, we will get to the rest of the key uh, week three or week four games, pardon me, and as always, end things off with some segments. So thank you for listening, and we'll get going right now. We'll start the week three recap in College Station. Uh, the whole past week, the whole nation was having fun, poking fun at Texas A&M, deservingly so after they got manhandled by App State, but credit where credit is due. Uh, they beat the Miami Hurricanes 17-9 in a late night game at Kyle Field. They switched over from Haynes King to Max Johnson at starting quarterback, and while it wasn't a pretty win, it was a win nonetheless against a Miami team who could still will probably be really good this year. Um, Texas A&M, after the App State debacle, had their backs up against the wall because they're about to start SEC play, and the schedule gets really, really hard on Saturday against Arkansas. We'll talk about that one later. But, you know... If they had dropped this Miami game and been one and two before they even went into SEC play in the hardest division in the country, then things could have gotten very grim, very fast in Aggie land. Uh, so hats off to them for finding a way to grind this one out. They still, the box score still doesn't look like Texas A&M would have won this game if um, if you didn't know the the score. But of course, that's the only stat that matters in the end. They gave up 27 first downs to Miami, but only yielded nine points. So that is, you know, classic bend, don't break. Uh, Miami just kicking three field goals instead of getting in the end zone once with 27 touchdowns or first downs is uh, quite impressive. Um, but the Aggies had both DB or both cornerbacks, I believe, uh, ejected in the first half for targeting and had a number of other players suspended this week uh, for breaking curfew. So they were shorthanded to begin with. They had just switched their starting quarterback and they still found a way to get this win. Um, Miami, you know, although they were able to move the ball, they weren't able to get it into the end zone. And I just credit to the Aggie defense for holding strong, even without a bunch of key guys uh, in the secondary. The offense still has a long way to go if they want to have a good season in SEC play. But you know what? They needed this momentum really bad after what happened in week two, and now they go into Jerry World against Arkansas. Hopefully for them with a little pep in their step and everything. Um, so their schedule is about to get hard. Miami plays Middle Tennessee State. They get to kind of regroup next week. Then they have a bye before they begin ACC play with North Carolina in October. So the Hurricanes, you know, they – even though I'm sure they're not happy with how this one shook out, 
they can still have a really, really great, possibly 10-win season in the ACC and even win their division. So if they can just put it together, you know, I mean, they're it wasn't a great team last year. This is only the third game in the crystal ball era. So I think Miami will be able to rebound from this one and still have a good showing for the rest of the year. We'll stay in the SEC and travel to the Plains. Penn State defeated Auburn 41-12, to um, a rather shocking result for all of us that have watched Auburn closely over the years because one thing about Auburn, whether you like them, love them, or hate them, is they rarely get blown out at home. And unless they're on the road in maybe Athens or Tuscaloosa, you know, they they barely get just blown out ever. They always have a great defense, which even if the offense is inept and they're doing the switching quarterback thing, um, they can at least have a respectable final, final score. In fact, this was the worst Auburn loss since 2012, so it's been a whole decade since they've seen this type of a beating. They did their defense no favors with the four turnovers, but also if you're allowing 6.3 yards per carry like they did to the Penn State rushing attack, it's, uh, it's hard to have much success uh, with those stats. Auburn alternated quarterbacks the whole game like we've seen them do in the past, like other teams have tried with very little success. I understand there are questions to sort out at that position at Auburn, but it still baffles me that you're trying this in a game against a good Power 5 team. It's one thing if you do it against Mercer when you're trying to sort things out on your roster and depth chart, but it just... I don't feel like you need to be a SEC head coach to know that typically if you're in a game against a good opponent, alternating quarterbacks just really doesn't shake out in your favor way, way more often than not. There were many times, at least in the first half, where it seemed like Finley would be getting a good play or two together, make a good pass, get, you know, get some yards on his feet, and then instantly, after a positive play, a first down, they would yank him and put Ashford in and then kill whatever momentum they might have been starting to gain. Um, all year, I've heard about the, uh, I will confess, I didn't watch the Mercer or San Jose State games, but my Auburn buddies have told me their concerns about the overall state of the roster. These concerns wound up being justified. Penn State was just bigger, faster, and stronger the whole game. And, you know, with a stat like 6.3 yards per carry, um, you don't have to be a genius to to see how that that will shake out if if you're in a deficit when it comes to just overall talent. Because of that, the Nittany Lions did a really great job playing defense and running the ball, which are two things that even in a hostile environment like Jordan-Hare, I'm sure was at least in the first half, you know, running the ball and defense can travel. And uh, they looked like what you would expect an SEC team to look like against an inferior Big Ten opponent. But it was uh, the other way around, and now Penn State has 
a kind of new life and energy injected into their season after winning two tough road games at Purdue week one. Uh, when that game, I forget who ended up being the favorite. It was basically a pick 'em, and then they were only a field goal favorite at Auburn. So starting three and zero for Penn State is really huge for James Franklin and the Nittany Lions. And now you know they they're probably looking at their season a lot differently because I think m- maybe a realistic Penn State fan would have been happy with two and one coming out of these first three games with those two road games they had to play. Um, but 3-0, and who knows? They play Michigan in October, and while Michigan definitely looks like they would be the favorite right now just based on the rankings, Michigan hasn't played anybody, so we don't really know too, too, too much about them, although they do look good. Um, so that'll be a fascinating matchup between Penn State, and I believe that's in the big house. So especially if both teams can just win the games, they should be winning between now and then. Um, the Big Ten West could get really interesting. And we'll talk about the Auburn situation with Harson later in the hot seat segment. Speaking of Auburn, we move out to Eugene, Oregon, where Bo, Bo Nix led the Oregon Ducks to defeat BYU 41-20. to Nix had an efficient game. He was 13 for 18 with 222 yards and two tutties. Um, you know, Oregon got horribly embarrassed by Georgia opening weekend in Atlanta when the Bulldogs just thrashed them and looked as good as they did, if not better than last year. So that was scary for everybody in the country, um, but unfortunate for Oregon having to start out their season that way. Not that the outcome of the game would have changed very much if it was played in the Pacific Northwest, but a tough spot for them to go week one against this Georgia team in Atlanta, where it's basically a Georgia home game. Um, So props to Oregon for bouncing back in a big way after that against a team that I still believe despite a three touchdown loss is really, really good in BYU. Um, If anything, we can learn the most about Georgia here because I have very high high hopes for BYU this season, and if they lose to three touchdowns by a team that Georgia beat by basically seven touchdowns, six touchdowns, whatever, then maybe Georgia is that good. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't be shocking, but yeah, it's it's scary scary to think about it in that way with the Bulldogs for sure. BYU, I don't think too much to panic about because they've scheduled they're independent. And they scheduled a really tough out-of-conference schedule. Or not out-of-conference, I guess. They're independent. But regardless, they played Baylor, who could very still easily win the Big 12 and beat them in overtime in Provo late last Saturday night. Just went on the road to Oregon. Got it handed to them. um, But... You know, I think I think both of these teams are gonna be good for the rest of the year. So I wouldn't let this three touchdown loss turn you off of BYU. But now we see that Oregon isn't gonna just be a six win team this year. If they're beating a BYU team like this, then they clearly have the chops to make some serious noise in the Pac twelve and have a very, very good season. Next game in the dock is LSU Mississippi State. The Tigers won 31 to 16. I was rather shocked by this outcome. I'm still pretty high on Mississippi State this year. 
Um, but they had been off to a great start and LSU obviously not as everybody saw opening weekend against FSU in New Orleans. State played really, really poorly on special teams, but I got to give credit to LSU because I didn't think that their defensive backs would be able to keep up with the Mississippi State passing game, and they absolutely did. All we've heard about all offseason is how Will Rogers, third-year quarterback in Mike Leach's system, and that's just the magic number for all of his quarterbacks to go off and just do his classic air raid on everybody they meet. But LSU was able to hold them to only 16 points. State got out to an early lead, but LSU's defense was able to keep them in check enough to where it gave the offense time to get a bit of a rhythm and get rolling. And Jaden Daniels played way better than we saw him in week one against Florida State. So encouraging, um, kind of in a similar light to Texas A&M. LSU really needed this this victory, especially with it being in Tiger Stadium at nighttime. Um, they really needed this one, and they went out and they got it in a pretty convincing fashion. So Mississippi State, some stuff to clean up. Um, disappointing performance for them, because even if they didn't win, I mean, I think they were only a two-point favorite, but... You don't, you don't expect to lose that game by a couple scores despite all of the history between the two schools and LSU being so dominant. Um, disappointing outing for the Bulldogs, but I think they'll still turn it around and have a really, really good showing and be towards the top of the SEC West. Still wouldn't surprise me to finish for them to finish above LSU in the West, um, but LSU getting this win against a good state team. Uh, they, they needed that in a bad way after all of the criticism um, from earlier this year. So props to LSU and Brian Kelly for getting a much-needed win before the schedule ramps up as it always does in October when you're in the SEC. Some quick hitters here. Um, more games to recap from last week. App State beat the Troy Trojans. 32-28. to 28. Didn't see any of this game until the final play because despite it being on ESPN's College Game Day, they did not put it on any ESPN channels and only on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, but they showed the last play of the game. I forget whether the Auburn or LSU game was on on my TV at this point, but the Hail Mary... <laughs> Ball was a couple yards short, and it was tipped out to a receiver who was able to kick it around to the right side of the end zone, find some grass, and get in for the final score after they had been down by a couple points going into that final play. So happy for App State. At this point, everyone knows my feelings about them, um, and I'm glad to see that the uh, greater part of college football Twitter has taken them up as America's team because they certainly are. So shout out to the Mountaineers. I hope they keep it rolling. And uh, what a what an incredible victory there in Boone for uh, the biggest the biggest game that the program has played, at least at home, outside of the couple ups, upsets they've pulled in school history. Georgia beat South Carolina 48-7. Not a whole lot to talk about here. The dogs just continue to absolutely curb stomp opponents and will be scary, 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 it looks like, for the rest of the year. 
OU, uh, Oklahoma beat uh, Nebraska 49 to 14. Some of us thought, um, some of us, maybe me, thought that Nebraska could possibly pop back with all the close games they had last year. And even though they lost nine games, eight of them were by double digits. And the last one was by nine to Ohio State. So you figure maybe with some new life injected with Scott Frost sucking the life out of the campus, gone that Nebraska could come out and have a good showing and put on a good fight behind a riled up home crowd in Lincoln. But no, Oklahoma continues to roll 3-0 and for the Sooners. USC beat Fresno State 45-17. to Fresno, even though they're not a big name, they are always a scrappy team. And much like last week when USC went to Stanford, um, this Fresno State game would have been a classic spot for any of the USC teams in the past decade plus to slip up and lose a game, but they continue to roll, put on a great offensive performance against a scrappy opponent, and they play Oregon State next week, which we'll talk about later, but another possible slip-up spot for the Trojans, who I'm not as quite to write off now. Washington beat Michigan State 39-28. to this one wasn't even as close as the score sounds. Uh, Washington straight up bullied them up and down the field all game. Like we're used to seeing Michigan State doing to a lot of teams. This kind of sounds weird. And my dad and brother asked me on Friday, why is Washington a three-point favorite against Michigan State? And I said, I don't know, because I was very tempted to stay, take the Spartans plus three, thankfully laid off because it was one of those lines that just looks a little too weird where you just know Vegas knows something that we don't. And I think that's something, especially now in hindsight, is that Washington was supposed to have a great year last year, but their defunct head coach, Jimmy Lake, wasted the talent of a really good roster, and that team absolutely nosedived uh, to the um, unfortunate loss of a few Hummus Tailgate Party futures on the Washington Huskies. And Michigan State overachieved last year, uh, lost some key players, and this year they're a little bit worse than most people probably would have expected coming off of a really solid season last year. So Washington, the public was too low on them. Michigan State, public too high. But um, I guess that explains the 11-point victory that should have been even more there in Seattle. Some very close ones in the SEC. Arkansas beat Missouri State 38-27. This one also was closer than the score indicated. Um, Missouri State was winning that game deep into the second half, but Arkansas was able to come back and pull it off. Thank goodness for the Hogs. They had a couple big games against Cincinnati and South Carolina to start the season off. Next week, they go to the annual game at Jerry World and play Texas A&M. So this was probably a classic just decompressing slash look ahead double whammy spot for them. Um, they were able to pull it out at the end, but Missouri State put on a way better fight than anybody would have imagined. Florida only beat South Florida 30-27. to um, Again, Florida's had a couple really tough games with Utah and Kentucky starting the season out 1-1. And then South, and then they go to 
get college game day in Knoxville on this upcoming Saturday in South Florida. You have to imagine very uh, classic big brother, little brother game. So South Florida was probably quite jazzed to be in this matchup, but the Gators were able to pull it off. They have a lot to sort out if they are going to win this game in Knoxville on, uh, on Saturday. Wake Forest only beat Liberty by one point again. They play Clemson next week, and they, they're still getting settled back into Sam Hartman returning from his medical issues, and thank goodness he's back. But and Liberty, and, you know, they're a tough team too. They're scrappy, and with Hugh Freeze, they're a lot better than you would ever think Liberty would be um, in the historical sense. But Wake Forest was able to squeak out the one-point victory and go into the Clemson game next week, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, with an undefeated record. Lastly, in Week 2, Notre Dame defeated Cal 24-17. They were lucky to even win this game. This is a game that they should have come out. Cal is not very good, y'all. And Notre Dame, with the struggles they've had so far this season, last week losing to Marshall, they should have come out guns a-blazing, and they did not at all. They were losing this game for a little bit, and Cal had a chance at the end to tie this game up or even take the lead and the win with a two-point conversion. But the Fighting Irish do finish it off in South Bend 24-17 over the Golden Bears. Before we get on to our interview with Alex and look at the week four games, we're going to do a couple segments. I've been a little inconsistent with the placing of these in the podcast so far, but I think this is the best place to do it. So we're going to get on to the hot seat of the week presented by Lee Corso. Um, Pretty juicy one this week. So Herm Edwards, who has been on our hot seat list Ever since this podcast had started before last season, just got relieved of his duties by Arizona State after the third week of the season, after losing to Eastern Michigan at home. This was the start of Edwards' fifth season with the Sun Devils. He had a 26-20 and overall record. He has had a lot of issues off the field. Um, If you recall us talking about it last season, he got in trouble with the NCAA during 2020 because that summer when everything was locked down and there were no recruiting visits allowed, they were hosting high schoolers on campus, touring the facilities. When this broke out and got public, most all of his coaching staff got fired, but he didn't, which was always just very strange because it's like the one man in charge of all of this was the one man who was able to keep his job, and he hired a whole new coaching staff, and Arizona State did not perform as well as they were hoping to last year, despite a still pretty good roster that they had recruited. Um, so that was just the start of it. So... Um, they never had an awful season, but he also never got over the eight win hump. His first three years increased in, uh, wins every single season. And then they went eight and five a couple times and they started this season off one and two after losses to Oklahoma state and 
most recently Eastern Michigan. So this was not a surprise after the COVID thing happened and starting quarterback Jaden Daniels uh, uh, transferred away to LSU this past offseason and a lot of roster turnover like that. Uh, Everyone thought that Edwards would be released this year, although probably not this quickly. Um, But after the NCAA issues, he dug himself a hole that would have been really, really hard to get out of um, today. So he got released Saturday night. Um, It was a very quick, quick decision on the brass at Arizona State's part. But today... Uh, per the athletics, Doug, I believe it's Haller, Haler, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, um, but he reported that opposing court coaches in the Pac-12 have been saying that Arizona State's game plan was not hard to acquire before their teams played the Sun Devils uh, because the whole new coaching staff just wanted them gone. I don't know how much truth or validity there is to this, but it is a situation that while it, you know, I mean, he's done, he's out of there. It's not going to, I don't think, affect Arizona State anymore going forward. But a hell of a juicy story uh, to keep your eye on where we will probably learn more information as the days, weeks, and months go along. So the Sun Devils will turn a new page. It's really a... a program that I could see doing quite well with the right coach, just make it attractive. I mean, Phoenix, they're in, Tempe is in Phoenix, and it's a recruiting hotbed. You have Southern California right down the road. Um, cool school, party school, like it's, it, it can't be that hard to get a lot of good players to go there. So if they were to hit a home run higher, I could see Arizona State turning things around really quickly, but I definitely think it's best that they moved on from the Herm Edwards experience because it's been a couple years now that it's seemed very unlikely that this would really work in the long run. The next active coach on the list, we've already had two of our, Scott Frost was on the list ever since this podcast started and Herm Edwards was on the list ever since this podcast started. So goodbye to two of the original Hot Seat of the Week uh, members that I don't think ever got off of it. But Brian Harson, this Penn State game could not have gone worse with all of the off-season stuff that even as a Bama fan, I, I truly feel for Harson and his family having to go through everything that the fucked up Auburn brass, you know, whoever that may be, board members, donors, you know, whoever put them through trying to conspire to fire him for cause and getting out of their fat buyout that they would owe to him. Um, While, you know, it it has me conflicted, I don't really want to see Auburn do too well, but I, I have a hard time rooting against Harson because I've thought that he's always conducted his himself in a very professional manner and with this job even though his the recruiting has been the thing that will end up killing him but he's never been in the SEC in the south and he uh he got dealt a tough a tough hand with with this job there's no doubt about it however the loss at home against Penn State 
really inexcusable. Like I said, this was Auburn's worst loss in a decade. And Auburn, especially at home, just that just doesn't happen. They might not, you know, they didn't even have to win this game. I mean, he he had a steep hill to climb to try to keep his job after this season anyway. But they didn't have to win this game. But just to show up and look like a respectable opponent um, would have at least given him a chance at a thought of retaining the gig. Um, but now they start SEC play and they play Missouri next week at home. They're a touchdown favorite. If they lose that game, we might see him get dismissed as quickly as Herm Edwards did, because I guess I didn't go into too much detail about it, but it looked like the Arizona state athletic director and president met him in the end zone before he even got to the locker room and told him we're done here and it might be the same deal with Harson if he loses to Missouri, who is probably the 13th best team in the SEC next week at home. I think Auburn will still win this game. Like I said, they're a touchdown favorite. However, after that, they get into LSU, Georgia, and it just you know it's just bad from there on. So it's hard to imagine Auburn stringing together a big enough winning streak to where the powers that be won't send him on his way, especially because Auburn's first five home first five games are at home. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard to imagine him making it past October at this point. Um, I would honestly, maybe that's the best thing for him personally in the long run, um, just to get out as soon as possible and, while I don't know if he would get another head coaching job immediately after this, just get somewhere else and kind of start over and hit the reset button. And then, you know, one day I'm sure he could probably be a pretty successful head coach at a program elsewhere in the country. And for him and his family, I definitely wouldn't hate that for him after all that they've been through uh, by their employer. So yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one closely, obviously, and if anything else stirs up, we'll have one of my Auburn compadres, if anyone feels like talking about it, come on and kind of explain it from their point of view, but yeah, that's a very fastly, quickly developing situation. Uh, Next, Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech, he is one and two on the year. He's been on our hot seat list for quite a while. I don't know if he was there at the beginning of last season, but soon after, uh, he was certainly on it. It's been a really rough go for the Yellow Jackets in Atlanta. They just lost 42-0 to to Ole Miss in Atlanta, and it's hard to see them getting many, if any, wins in the ACC this year. So I would love to see some odds from Vegas on whether Harson or Collins will get dismissed first. Something tells me it might be Harson, uh, just with the urgency that the Auburn program has shown us that they clearly have to turn the page to someone else after not even a year and a half, but both of them would not be surprised to see them get dismissed here sometime in the near future. We come out to my home in Colorado. 
They are the Buffaloes are 0 and 3 and have lost their first three games by about 30 points per game. They might be the worst team in the Power Five now that Vandy and Duke have showed up. Uh, Colorado versus Georgia Tech would be the sicko game of the millennium, if I had to guess. But you know, he Carl Dorrell, he got dealt such a shitty hand with Mel Tucker leaving for Michigan State, which who can blame the guy, but he did it in February of 2020 of all years. So then Colorado hired Durrell, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks before the whole country shut down. So he wasn't able to recruit. He wasn't able to work out and practice with his team over the off season. And the roster was already, you know, not great because so many guys had left with the COVID rules and transferred elsewhere, whether it be Michigan state or another PAC 12 school or whatever. They've got to change something in Boulder. It's just so bad and so embarrassing. And it's a shame because this is such a cool school. And I've been up there to a game in 2019. And it's an, one of the probably the most beautiful campus I've ever seen in the country. Um, and, you know, back in the 90s, before I think most of my listeners can remember, they were national title caliber and really, really frisky and beat the dynasty Nebraska teams. And it's just gone so far south over the past few years. Their athletic director came out yesterday and released a statement pleading for support from the fans. Uh, But what he was really trying to say is we don't have enough money to pay the buyout for Carl Durrell right now. So please keep supporting us and sending in your booster checks uh, this is also part of the reason why Mel Tucker left was because Colorado just wasn't able to pony up to the to the likes of a Michigan State type program. But just a really embarrassing thing. And Darrell seems like a great guy, and that had to be hard to go through for him. So I I feel for him and all of the buff faithful because they've become one of my you know backup teams outside of Bama and. It sucks seeing them in such a dark place, but it is what it is. His buyout doesn't reduce until December 31st, which is another really tough situation for Colorado when it goes from about $12 million to $7 million because ideally, if you wanted to make a change, you would do it either now or in October or at the very least after week 12 or 13, whatever, in late, late November. But not being able to fire him until December 31st, if their hands truly are tied with this buyout, um, that hinders their future ability to hire the next head coach that they want because in between Thanksgiving and New Year's, when the buyout lessons that's when all of the coaches that they're looking for might get snatched up by another opponent who can hire them in late November early December so really rough situation in Boulder Scott Satterfield at Louisville we talked about him a lot over the past couple years his hot seat is currently getting hotter they just lost to FSU at home and are only one and two on the year wouldn't be surprised to see him go from the Louisville Cardinals if things continue to go like they've been going 
Dino Babers. We're actually moving him off of the hot seat list uh, for the first time in some time. Uh, they started, Syracuse has started 3-0, and and they just got a victory at home over Purdue. They play Virginia, who they should beat, um, at the Carrier Dome Friday at 6. So congratulations to Dino Babers. We won't be talking about you for at least a couple weeks if things go really, really poorly. Lastly, uh, Scott Frost, just a quick update on Nebraska. Um, Bruce Feldman of The Athletic reported uh, Nebraska's top three candidates, apparently, which are Matt Campbell of Iowa State, Lance Leipold of Kansas, who is off to a 3-0 start. And it's a shame that College Game Day didn't go to 3-0 Kansas versus 3-0 Duke, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, and Bill O'Brien, the Alabama offensive coordinator, are the top three co- candidates to take over in Lincoln. I thought some of you Alabama fans might have enjoyed that little nugget. Um, but with all of that, here is Alex Allen to talk about the Tennessee Volunteers. All right, we got Alex Allen on the podcast, lifelong Tennessee fan, uh, talking about the Volunteers season outlook and this big game against Florida coming up in Neyland on Saturday. We've got number 20 Florida at number 11 Tennessee. The spread has moved. It opened up Tennessee minus nine and a half. And when I checked earlier this afternoon, it had already been bet up to minus 11. It's the 230 CBS game. So this is the first time game day has been to Knoxville since 2016. Um, Josh Dobbs led number 14 Tennessee to beat number 19 Florida 38 to 28 after trailing 21 to three at halftime. Alex, I want to start off by looking at the big picture of this Tennessee program with you. And to me, the kind of preseason and early season hype feels a lot like that 2016 team early on. Do you think so? I would like to get your your opinion on that because it feels kind of similar with the fun offense and the good quarterback and everything. Yeah, for sure. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say thanks for having me on, Jackson. Um, of course. Definitely, definitely excited to be here. And, uh, yeah, uh, for any of my Auburn faithful that are listening to this, for those of you that don't know, Yes, I have been a lifelong Tennessee fan. My dad was a graduate from there, so I was definitely raised on the orange and white. Um, as far as your question goes, Jackson, yeah, this feels a lot like like that season with Dobbs. Uh, but I actually feel better about it than that season. And the reason being is I feel like this team definitely is better coached and possibly more talented as far as across the board. Um, It's no secret that Josh Dobbs was definitely the cornerstone of that squad. And, you know, there were obviously great stars. I mean, there's also Alvin Kamara, uh, guys like that, you know, that can make plays. They just weren't utilized properly. So, you know, now with this current Tennessee squad, I mean, you got people like Cedric uh, Tillman that's coming back that's, that came back from last year after he exploded on the scene. He could have definitely left early, but he chose to come back and spend another year. 
And what does he play? Michael. He plays wide receiver. Mm-hmm. He's, I would say he's Tennessee's probably go-to guy. Um, pretty, pretty good size. He's not our fastest receiver. Uh, the fastest receiver is definitely Jalen Hyatt. And he bulked up, put on another 10 or 15 pounds. Um, he's already been fairly productive this year. And alongside that, you got Brew McCoy, who transferred from USC, was granted eligibility right before the season started. I'm talking like the week of week one. So those cats, along with Walker Merrill, who is an in-state guy, um, he already scored a couple times this year. Basically, the wide receiver room is pretty deep. Um, defensively, the linebackers are veteran set of guys, and the only the only position group that I'm a little concerned with is the running backs. Well, actually, no, I'm concerned about the secondary as well. Um, but we can get that we can get to that later. Um, but yeah, overall, I think this is a very talented team, and I think that. Uh, I hope I don't eat my words when I say this, but I think they might actually live up to the hype for once. Yeah, and the 2016 team, they started 5-0 and with back-to-back wins against Florida and Georgia before losing the next three and then finishing 9-4, and which is not a bad record by any means, but when you start 5-0, and you don't envision four losses being on the schedule, but it kind of fell off the rails there on the second half. Last year, Tennessee went seven and six, which isn't up to the Tennessee standard, obviously, but it was year one of the Josh Heupel era. So, I mean, how do you feel just overall about the big picture, general trajectory of the program under Heupel? Because, if you could, I mean, I guess if you could start with just reminding everyone how Tennessee Vol Faithful felt about Hypel when he was hired, because his AD got hired before him and he was from UCF, then he hired the UCF head coach. And at least I think a lot of other SEC fans were kind of skeptical. And um, it, it, it seems like after one year of a seven and six season, Tennessee has really made a big jump to have, you know, maybe not winning the East this year expectations, but just overall seems like a very good vibe coming from the program, not just from in Knoxville, but all over the country, people seem to be pretty high on them. So do you share the similar sentiment there with everybody else across the country generally about Tennessee moving in the right direction? I do. Um, You know, it's, it's been a tough, it's been tough sledding being a Tennessee fan the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, at least um, for various reasons, depending on the season, you know, a lot of people don't realize the Tennessee, I mean, they're number 10 all time in wins. This is a program that is used to having excellence. And, you know, I, I would say Tennessee is a great example of what happens when you have you know, steady seasons, and then you fire a coach without having a a good, solid backup plan. Um, Not to go off on a rabbit hole too much, but, you know, you hire a guy named Lane Kiffin, which we all know who that is, who's probably the best hire prior to Heupel. However, he had other ambitions, and Tennessee was clearly not his top priority, and I won't get into that, but left after a season. Then you hired Derek Dooley, 
basically because of his father's name. And that was proven to be a disaster, followed by Butch Jones, who obviously could recruit, but didn't know how to use his players. And he was eventually shown the door and most recently Jeremy Pruitt. Um, I think, and I probably speak on behalf of most Tennessee faithful, um, after the series of just incompetent hires, um, I was skeptical myself because I think a lot of us wanted wanted a coach who knew the SEC and was a proven winner. We didn't want to, you know, take a chance on some up and coming assistant from Saban, which obviously proved that was Been a disaster to prove it. Yep, as have plenty of other schools. Mm-hmm. You know, Kirby Smart seems to be doing very well at Georgia, obviously. But he's an outlier, though. He is. He is. uh, You know, the closest one after him that comes to mind is Jimbo Fisher. He's had his own issues. Mm -hmm. So I was skeptical. I thought that, honestly, I thought when Heupel was hired, I thought, man, you know, this AD probably didn't have his A, B, or C guy. So he figured, well, at least Heupel's a known quantity. Hopefully he can adapt to the SEC. As far as the trajectory going forward is concerned, I think I think Tennessee is on the right track. My only real concern is, can this offense be sustainable? And when I say that, I don't think it's quite as gimmicky as, you know, Gus Malzahn's offense was, for example, at Auburn which was very effective the first few seasons. And then everyone kind of started figuring out what was going to happen. So that's my only concern. Um, I do like the fast paced boom, 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 but you know, it's a double-edged sword. If you go three and out every time your defense never gets a rest. So I'm, I, I would, I'd be curious to see what it looks like a couple of years from now. But as far as the trajectory of the program, I mean, this is the most excited I've been to watch Tennessee football in years. So on a more short-term scope, what are your expectations for this season? And is there a certain number of wins or losses that would constitute a, you know, passing grade or a failing grade? Okay, um, I could answer this question one of two ways. So, are you asking this from based off of what we have all seen so far, or what I would have thought going into the season? Um. Well, I guess, I guess what you thought going into the season, because it's not surprising that Tennessee is three and zero, and they've had one you know, tough matchup so far in which they went on the road and got a gritty overtime win. But I guess, I guess before the season more so, um, or if it's changed, just tell me both. But I mean, yeah. What do you think either way? So the fact that Tennessee won the pit game at Pittsburgh, I think was huge. Um, You know, Pittsburgh last year, that was a tough game. And 
you know, Joe Milton started the game, uh, wasn't doing so well, ended up tweaking his knee, got pulled out, and that's when Hendon Hooker came in. Had Hooker stayed in the had been had Hooker played the game the whole time, and especially at the level that he's been playing, you know, the back half of last season and now, Tennessee probably would have won that game. And that was against a bunch of fifth years and sixth years. And Pitt, Pitt was great last year, yeah. Oh, they were. They won the, SEC, the ACC championship. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Kenny Pickett went to the NFL and is now with the Steelers. And that'll be interesting to watch to see if they give him the ball. But to go back to Tennessee, um, I think winning at Pitt was huge for the season because that's huge positive momentum. Um, that was a game that I honestly had chalked up as a 50-50 game. I really wasn't sure, especially before the opener. You know, I watched Tennessee handle Ball State as they should. And I thought, okay, well, you put up 59 points against Ball State. Surely, you know, the the offense shouldn't be an issue. I was just concerned about the defense. And ironically, the defense actually kept Tennessee in the game at Pittsburgh because for any of y'all that watched, Tennessee didn't start start out too hot which was uncharacteristic for the offense. Got down 10-0, um, got down 10-0 and it easily could have been 17-0, but Tennessee got a, a well-timed pick there in the in the Pittsburgh end zone, or in their own end zone, yeah. rather. So, yeah, it, it, it could have gotten ugly early, but they were able to keep it within striking distance. So, I mean, that's huge, Very. just the resiliency to get down even two scores, even 10-0, just to, to fight back on the road like that, like they did. Oh, absolutely. And I think for the program as a whole, I mean, that was a, it's just a huge confidence booster. There's no way, no other way to say it. Um, and looking forward, Tennessee is going to need that. Um, a similar game that I, I see is that's going to be tough regardless of, you know, their, I wouldn't say downward spiral, but definitely downward tra- trajectory from their historic championship season, which is I'm talking about LSU. Tennessee travels to play at LSU uh, two weeks after this Florida game. So I think having experience winning a tight game in overtime in Pittsburgh was pivotal and will help Tennessee with the LSU game. That's also a game that I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like it could go either way because it's in Death Valley. And you have Alabama coming into town. This is the best I've felt about that matchup in years. Um, I think Tennessee has a legitimate chance because it's at home and with the way Tennessee's been playing and, you know, Alabama is a hell of a team. Obviously I see Nick Saban preparing Alabama to take care of businesses or at least, you know, try to take care of business as usual, but given the emotions and kind of a, the fire going on right now, I can see that game being a good game. Maybe it'll go in Tennessee's favor this year. We'll see. But I'm, those two games I think are big games to circle. Kentucky's having an unusually good year this year as well. That'll be a game to watch. And when is that game? That game's on the 29th. Okay. That is at Tennessee. So hopefully Tennessee has the edge there. Um, and then lastly, Tennessee plays at Georgia. And what week is That's, that? That is November 5th. Okay. 
So those games that I just mentioned, LSU, Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia, couple, and on top of the Florida game, I mean, all of those games are games where either Tennessee shouldn't win or Tennessee could win. Um, it's hard to say. I, I think Tennessee out of, you know, coming in this season for most ball fans, I think the, the big three for us would be Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, as far as, you know, really, really wanting to win, you know, at least one, if obviously you want to win all the games you play, but realistically speaking, you know, at least one of those games we wanted to come away with. And I think Tennessee should be able to steal at least one of those games. Georgia, Florida, Alabama. Agreed. And Florida, Florida being an 11 point favorite at home, wouldn't really even be a steal. You know, I mean, if y'all can win this one on Saturday, then who do you play in between Florida and uh, LSU? We have a bye week. Bye week. Oh, well, that's nice. So if you take care of business on Saturday, then it's like, okay, instead of stealing one of the three, it's like maybe steal like two of the three and, you know, look at one or the other Bama, Georgia going to be the two hardest games of the season, obviously. But yeah, you know, I mean, who knows? And I mean, every other game that Tennessee plays against other East opponents, Kentucky is going to be tough as they've shown um so far this year and they've been tough in previous seasons but you know every other game should be one where Tennessee's favored so then yeah then you kind of set your sights on the on the bigger ones and you know if if they could get one of those two that would be monumental for the program and everything especially in only year two of Hypel. oh for sure I I honestly I honestly think, you know, Tennessee should should win against Florida. And the reason why I said steal, by the way, even though Tennessee's been favored, and I hate to say this as a Tennessee fan, but, I mean, Florida currently leads the series against Tennessee, and that would be 31 to 20. Now, a bulk of those wins have come since 2005. And it really hurts to say this, but yeah, Tennessee has won once since then. So it just is that whatever. Yeah. Was it 20, I guess 2016. Cause I know, I knew I had read that, that, that 2016 game where y'all came back from 21, three at halftime, um, Florida was on like an 11 game winning streak, but I, I didn't realize that they hadn't won any since then. Yeah. Um, it's similar in a way to the Alabama series with Tennessee. It's been very streaky. Yep. Um, when they first started playing, Tennessee won the first 10 game, 10, 10 meetings. And aside from the 90s with Spurrier, you know, it's it has been pretty, pretty streaky. Um for whatever reason, it seems like even in Florida's down years in the last 15 years or so, Florida has just found a way, even if Tennessee was the better team. Um, that's that's why I said the term steal, because they have seemed to have Tennessee's number 
which is unfortunate for a Tennessee fan, obviously. And I don't know. It's just those games are chippy. Um, I personally consider, and I know once again, as you and all the other Bama fans on this podcast know, you know, the Bama-Tennessee rivalry hasn't been what it has been in the past in the last 15 years or so. However, I still consider Alabama to be Tennessee's biggest rival. Um, however, depending on who you ask, kind of similar to the Auburn-Georgia, Auburn-Alabama rivalry, you know, because some Auburn, some Auburn fans would much rather beat Georgia every single year. Um, some Tennessee fans, you know, if, if you were a Tennessee fan during the Spurrier former days in the 90s, like my father, um, some of those fans have a much, much bigger hatred, distaste, or loathe towards Florida than even Alabama. So, yeah, and, and for those of my uh, peers that are listening that don't know the history, Alabama, Tennessee, like Alex said, has always been a very streaky rivalry and Unfortunately for us Alabama grads, it will will turn around, you know, whether it be this year or whenever. But it it it's it's weird how the rivalry games work like that, where it's oftentimes the teams are historically on a similar high note, but you just pop off three, six, nine at a time. And it's uh it is it is strange how how it works like that. And yeah, if you asked my father who he dislikes the most, it would be Tennessee over Auburn seven days a week and twice on Sunday. But, you know, it's just fans growing up in different eras and the Iron Bowl has been a lot more back and forth than the third Saturday in October. But, you know, well, we can get to that in a few weeks. Um, But let's zone in on this Florida matchup. How are you feeling about it? Despite, um, despite, okay, I just got a Zoom notification saying the meeting's going to end in 10 minutes because I don't have pro. So we'll have to get to this last couple questions kind of quick, I guess. Um, sure. Sorry about that. Um, how are you feeling about the Florida matchup? Can you tell us some matchups that you're looking at to be exploited, whether it be for Tennessee or on the Florida side? Just, what, what's what's your feel for the game? So, you know, I'm not a betting man, but if I had to put money on it, biases aside, I'm taking Tennessee. Um, honestly, and I know I said, I, once again, I'll keep referring to the steal, but um, I see the Florida-Tennessee game being close, at least for, you know, a couple quarters, if not even three quarters, just because it is a rivalry game. However, you know, Florida has some issues that they have. I think Florida has more issues that they need to address than Tennessee does on both sides of the football. For starting off, uh, I think we all need to really keep a, a good watch on Anthony Richardson, the quarterback number 15 for Florida. You know, he is obviously a physical freak of nature, but he has yet to throw a touchdown this season, if I'm correct on that. Um, I'm not really sure what's going on with the Florida team. I haven't watched a lot of their game film just because I've been preoccupied trying to keep up with both Auburn and Tennessee, but I did not hear very good reviews of them squeaking by USF this past weekend. They, 
they see they seem to be having some issues on offense. And, you know, I don't care what Tennessee's defense is doing. Um, Tennessee's offense is going to score points more likely than not. So if your offense can't can't compete in the shootout, it's gonna be tough to see Florida, you know. I could see them keeping it close, but I also could see Tennessee, you know, in the last quarter or two, just, just having a few, you know, kind of home run plays Mm -hmm. Um, just with the, just with how they operate Uh, in regards to Tennessee's offense. I mean, obviously Hendon Hooker is a known quantity. I don't know if many people realize this, but Hendon Hooker has been extremely efficient so far this season. He has thrown, for 844 yards, six touchdowns, and zero interceptions. Mind you, he's been pulled out of games early because of Ball State and Akron. And if you loop in last season's stats, Hedden Hooker has, has thrown combined for almost 4,000 yards, 37 touchdowns, and only three in- interceptions. So Hooker, so far, has done a good job protecting the ball. I think Florida is going to have to force some turnovers, maybe even score defensively to keep up with the offense, assuming Tennessee's offense is firing on all cylinders. The one, the one thing, and I know I mentioned earlier, my concerns with Tennessee, the running back room was already thin. Tennessee lost a running back going into the season in preseason for, for an injury. And during the Akron game, it appears that Jabari Small, one of the starting running backs, got a little gimpy. Uh, a report I saw today seemed to be favorable that he'd be able to play. Also, Cedric Tillman, who I brought up at the beginning of the podcast, the receiver, wide receiver number one, he seems to be on the trajectory to be playing this Saturday as well. Apparently, he also got a little banged up in the game against Akron. So, if Florida... Florida is going to have to force turnovers, basically. Um, and if they can't get their passing game going, I'm not really sure what's going to happen if Tennessee goes up the scores. So the only other concern I have on the Tennessee side is the secondary. It's just a young group of guys. And, you know, we can talk about that later in the season when they start playing teams that have a more polished offensive passing attack. But if Florida were to, were to get that going, that could be an area of concern as well. Yeah, Florida, I think everyone in the country still has a lot of questions about them after their week one. I mean, I know the spread wasn't big against Utah, but I'm still of the belief that Utah is one of the better teams in the country. And yes, it was in the swamp at night, but still like after that game, everyone was penciling in. Anthony Richardson to go to New York for the Heisman ceremony. And since then he has just not had it against Kentucky and even South Florida. So it's hard to get a pulse on a lot of these teams, especially with first year coaches and rosters that are just kind of scrambled eggs uh, from the last guy and the new guy. Um, But it should be a fascinating matchup, and I think we're going to learn a lot about both teams and if Tennessee can come out and, you know, they don't have to blow out Florida by any means, but if they can just come and take care of business at home, then I think it'll be a super encouraging Saturday for the Vol fans before they really get into the meat of the schedule. Um, 
We'll send it off with this. Do you have a score prediction for the people? My score prediction for this game, I'm going to say is 35 to 21. Uh, Tennessee on top. 35-21. All right, people. Take Tennessee and the points. All right, Alex. Thank you for joining us on the pod and giving some insight to Tennessee's uh, outlook and the situation for this college game day matchup on Saturday. And uh, hopefully the Vols keep rolling and we'll uh, maybe we'll talk again for the third Saturday of October. Yes, sir. Once again, I appreciate you having me on this podcast. Um, looking forward to this game this weekend. And yeah, we'll see what happens. Might see you again. All right, brother. Good night. All right. Take it easy. All right. Thank you kindly to Alex for coming on the pod to talk about Tennessee. We'll move on to the rest of the week for action. We've got number five, Clemson, who is a seven point favorite at number 21, Wake Forest. This is the 11 a.m. Central kickoff. Really interesting game here in the ACC. Um, Wake just escaped Liberty by one point. They are undefeated still, so this ACC matchup um, has a lot of long-term conference implications and even playoffs um, if we're looking more at the Clemson scope of things. I'm fascinated to see how this game goes. Wake Forest, um, their game against Liberty, like I said earlier, was 37-36. to 36, And Sam Hartman has just returned from his unfortunate medical issue over the late offseason. Clemson has been dealing with their own quarterback issues. Um, I think we will see Klubnik play a good bit in this game. Um, but either way, I think it'll be a pretty fun matchup there to start our Saturday off in the ACC. Next, we go to Jerry World, where Arkansas, number 10 Arkansas, plays number 23 Texas A&M. Surprisingly to me, Texas A&M is a two and a half point favorite in this ballgame. I thought we might see Arkansas favored by a couple points. They did just come off of, like I said, a very tough victory against Missouri State and A&M just being to beat a ranked Miami team at home. Um, however, I don't know. This game, either way, it should be really interesting. Arkansas still undefeated. A&M trying to get their season back beneath them. Um, I think... I think the Arkansas offense might be a little too much for A&M to keep up with. I kind of like them to win even as an underdog, but especially after last week with A&M getting the big win against Miami at home, um, I think they will have a lot of fans there in Jerry world and it'd be cool to kind of see, it'd be cool to see this game played in one or the other stadium every now and then, but it is a truly pretty neutral site for both of these teams, more or less in the middle. So I look forward to watching this matchup at six o'clock central time on ESPN. Next, we've got USC playing at Oregon State. USC has moved up to number seven in the AP poll. They are a six and a half point favorite over the Beavers, who have been very impressive so far this season, getting wins over Boise State and Fresno State. This doesn't kick off till 9.15 Central Time. Like I said, this is a classic spot for USC to slip up. 
in past years, and they escaped, not escaped, they handily beat Stanford on the road and then Fresno State at home, and both of those games are matchups where we could have expected previous USC teams to drop the game. This will be their first real test in Corvallis, late night, probably in the fog. I'm really high on this Oregon State team. Like I told you all in the preseason pod in the Pac-12 preview, this Beaver team is tough. And Vegas is telling you that since USC is only a six and a half point favorite over an unranked team. Um don't know if or what I will do with this game, but I am definitely looking for Oregon State, if not to pull the upset, to be very feisty in this. So that's one to keep on your televisions as your night is winding down. What I'm watching, moving into the segments now, the three time slots, best games of the day. Um, we're going to be watching Clemson at Wake Forest at 11 a.m. Central. Tennessee, Florida, as we discussed with Alex, the CBS 230 kickoff, and then Arkansas A&M. This Arkansas A&M game, I forgot to mention this in my quick little sprint through a preview of it. I, I believe, and I did not fact check this, but I believe it's always been the 11 a.m. ESPN game until this year because... A&M's been pretty good a bunch of years. Arkansas, for the vast majority of this uh, quote-unquote rivalry, if you will, has been pretty irrelevant as far as the SEC goes. Um, But now that both teams have the national spotlight on them, it's really cool to see this get from the bumps from the morning time slot to the nighttime time slot. And even though technically the 2.30 CBS game is the biggest game of the week in the SEC. I'm excited to see this one under the lights when these fans have all day to prepare accordingly for the matchup. It should be a hell of an environment in Dallas, and I can't wait for that one. Pac-12 after dark, game of the week, like we just talked about, was USC at Oregon State. I think it could get weird in Corvallis. I think USC will come out with the dub, but I wouldn't put it past the Beavers to make this a very interesting uh, midnight snack type of watch for everybody. The best bet of the week, per usual, uh, keep an eye on the Twitter. Probably on Thursday is when I will put it out. Last week, we dropped to 2-1 and one after a hot 2-0 and start. I picked the Auburn-Penn State under. Uh, Penn State on defense did their part for sure, but I did not expect Auburn to give up 41 points or whatever it was at home. So thanks a lot, Auburn, on that. We will come back and get to three and one this week. I will not guarantee it for legal purposes, but damn near close. Pick'em recap in the ESPN Hummus Tailgate Party spread pick'em. My boy Nate continues to roll and stay on top at a shocking spread of 20 and 10 overall ATS. So maybe I need to have him on here to help me out with best bets soon if I get another one wrong. But congratulations to Nate on a great first three weeks. And even though it's not me, we do have one night family member in second place, two games back, my little brother Will. So good job to him because it was a two and eight week for me. 
Um, that's about how bad I did in real life. So yeah, <laughs> they come and they go, but we'll get them back next week in week four. No doubt about it. Um, last thing for this week's pod, I probably won't have an episode coming out next week because I've got a couple visitors next weekend and the weekend after and a couple concerts sandwiched in between. I will do my best to rack one together on Monday afternoon, Monday night. Um, but I like to take my time and do my due diligence and prepare well for all of this and not just put a bunch of shit out there on the internet. So we'll see how much I can get done on Sunday and Monday. Maybe we'll have one, maybe we won't, but if not, we will come back with a big episode and an interview for the week six preview. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you to Alex again for joining along and, uh, good luck to his Tennessee Vols. Good luck to everybody's team and we will see y'all in a week or two. Bye-bye.